Madame. Hello. I have the honor to be your very obedient servant. Do you know? Are you going to be my servant? A popular salutation during the Victorian times. It's very apt for this episode, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And why is it apt? Well, I had to quickly Google. <laughs> so this is going to be the second deep dive into the vile Victorians. Ooh. And this is my turn. Ooh. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a peek into the past and truly ask ourselves, what were they thinking because we just not a lot yeah well no they were thinking far too much i think hence why they did so many things that were so bad which we're going to go into they were thinking too much about hysteria if you ask me my first topic i brought to talk about is something that was new to me i didn't know about this until you mentioned it and a couple of episodes ago, I think it was the Curses episode when it came. I believe it was, yes, the Curses episode. Check out Dude You Good episode. Dude You Good 6. Episode 6. Cruising through curses. But we're not on a boat when we do it. We're not on a boat when we do it. I wish we were. Anyway, so this is a new topic for me. I didn't know about this, so I've done a little bit more digging into this topic because I just had to know when you said had to know. Last line of a 17th century poem by John... Donna prompted Louise Noble's quest. Louise Noble is the person that's in the article, by the way. Women, the line read, are not only sweetness and wit, but mummy possessed. Sweetness and wit, sure, but mummy. In her search for an explanation, Noble, a lecturer of English, of English at the University of New England in Australia, made a surprising discovery. The word recurs throughout the literature of early modern Europe, from Don's Love Alchemy to Shakespeare's Othello, Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, because mummies and other preserved and fresh human remains were a common ingredient in the medicine of that time. In short, not long ago, Europeans were cannibals. Yeah. And I love it. I have done a lot of free time reading into this. Yeah, love it. For several hundred years, peaking in the 16th and 17th centuries, many Europeans, including royalty priests and scientists, routinely ingested remedies containing human bones, blood, and fat as medicine for everything from headaches to epilepsy. There are a few vocal opponents of the practice. Even though cannibalism in the newly explored Americas was reviled as a mark of savagery, mummies were stolen from Egyptian tombs and skulls were taken from Irish burial sites. Grave diggers robbed and sold body parts. I did not know about the fat. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get into it. We're going to get into the fact they used it a lot. The question was not, should you eat human flesh? But what sort of flesh should you eat? The answer, at first, was Egyptian mummy, which was crumbled into tinctures to staunch internal bleeding. But other parts of the body soon followed. Skull was one common ingredient, taken in powdered form to cure ailments. Thomas Wills, a 17th century pioneer of brain science, brewed a drink for epilepsy. He brewed a drink for bleeding, basically, that mingled powdered human skull and chocolate. And King Charles II of England sipped the king's drops, his personal tincture, containing human skull in alcohol. Even the top of moss that grew under a buried skull called usina, usnia, usnia, became a prized additive. Its powder, believed to cure nosebleeds and possibly epilepsy. Human fat was used to treat the outside of the body. German doctors, for instance, described bandages soaked in it for wounds, and rubbing fat into the skin was considered a remedy for gout. Oh! Mm. 
Mm. That's too much fat in your diet, isn't it? You check it with uric acid. I'm sure, that's what it is. So I guess if there's too much fat in your diet, putting more fat on the outside might make sense. Rub, but I don't think they knew it was caused by. It might make sense. Um, it's to do with rich food, gal. They just seemed to think that like put the fat on the bandage is going to help the cut heal. See, here's my thinking, right? So I knew about the chocolate one, the skull and chocolate, because I thought that was just common knowledge. My main question with that, not the consuming of the skull. I did not know they consumed chocolate as a drink back then. I didn't know they had hot chocolate. It was a drink made of human skull and chocolate. Okay. Blood now was procured as fresh as possible while it was still thought to contain the vitality of the body. This requirement made it challenging to acquire. The 16th century German-Swiss physician Paracelsus believed blood was good for drinking, and one of his followers even suggested taking blood from a living body. While that doesn't seem to have been common practice, the poor, who couldn't always afford the processed compounds sold in apothecaries, could gain the benefits of cannibal medicine by standing by at executions, paying a small amount for a cup of the still warm blood of the condemned. The executioner was considered a big healer in dramatic countries. He was a social leper with almost magical powers. For those who preferred their blood cooked, a 1679 recipe from a Franciscan apothecary describes how to make it into marmalade. That's disgusting. That's actually, I think that's actually the worst one, drinking blood. Making it into marmalade. Because you know when you know when you bite your lip? Or you bite your cheek, or your tooth, you know, whatever. You've got blood in your mouth. It do, it does not taste nice. It just tastes awkward to me. Yeah, it tastes it tastes metallic-y because of the iron in your blood and everything. Nowhere in my life would I be like, mmm, I want more of this taste. I need more blood. Really, they were all vampires. They weren't vampires. They just thought it would help. They thought it contained the soul of the body, essentially. Although, if you were a vampire back then, it must have been very, very easy. Oh, yeah. I mean, people were dying left, right, and centre. And it was just commonplace to drink blood. Like, you wouldn't even be questioned. Be fine. Probably could go out during the daylight due to the huge amount of smog. I mean, probably. From the factories. Yeah. Anyway, right. So, rub fat on an ache and it might ease your pain. Put powdered moss up your nose and your nosebleed will stop. If you can afford the king's drop, the float of alcohol probably helps you forget you're depressed. At least temporarily. In other words, these medicines may have been incidentally helpful. Even though they worked by magical thinking, one more clumsy search for answers to the question of how to treat ailments at a time when even the circulation of blood was not yet understood. Consuming human remains fit with the lead medical theories of the day, which it emerged from homeopathic ideas. It's like, cures like, basically. So you eat ground up skull for pains in the head, or you drink blood for diseases of the blood. That was a lot of the logic behind it. To be fair, I will always say this. If you do not know what works, anything works. Yeah, it's placebo effect, much like in the last episode. Whoa, check out the last episode for where the placebo effect originated from. They used blind trials blindfolding the subjects in their investigation, and the commission found that mesmerism only seemed to work when subjects were aware of it. Obviously, because it's the power of suggestion. You can't be hypnotized if you're not aware that you're gonna- yeah. The findings are considered the first observed observation of the placebo effect. Throwback. <gasps> Amazing. But yeah, that it's exactly the same kind of thing. So another reason human remains were considered potent was because they were thought to, to contain the spirit of the body from which they were taken. Spirit was considered a very real part of physiology, linking the body and the soul. In this context, blood was especially powerful. So they thought that the blood carried the soul and did so in forms of vaporous spirit. The freshest blood was considered the most robust. Sometimes the blood of young men was preferred, other times that of 
virgin or young women. By ingesting corpse materials, one gains the strength of the person consumed. To quote Leonardo da Vinci on the matter, we preserve our life with the death of others, and in a dead thing, infinite life remains, which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. Now, I'm going to say something. It might be incredibly wrong. Did Leonardo da Vinci do one of the first Blood transfusion? I don't know. Not gonna lie. I'm not sure. That is a dive for another day. I feel like I watched it on Da Vinci's Demons, which might make it incorrect. <laughs> but we never know. We do not know. But what do you think? What do you think about it? Have you learned any interesting new things from the corpse dive? Have I taught you anything? I did. I genuinely didn't know they would just drink fresh blood. Mm-hmm. And like, especially at executions. I didn't know that, like, at all. They used to pay a bit of money with the executioner, put a little cup underneath and just... Just picturing this guy bleeding out and then we're just walking by with a little, like, broken flask. Yeah, they're like, hey. Please, sir, can I have some blood? <laughs> Please, sir, can I have some blood? <laughs> just like, give me blood. 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 Yeah. yeah, no, I didn't know about that. I knew how much human stuff they um, ate for, like, medicines and just fun, really, at that point. Yes. But no, not about the blood, so that one is interesting. I'm glad I could teach you something about something I didn't know about until you taught me about it. So thank you for that. Thank you for putting me on this weird path. You, you are so welcome that I have opened your mind. Opened my mind to the possibility of... Eating corpses. Healing properties, yes, <laughs> in corpses. Now... The next topic is one that I have known about for a long time. And one of the main reasons why I absolutely love the Victorians, their wallpaper and their colours. So we're going to have a quick talk. A colour to die for. A great deal of slow poisoning is going on in Britain, wrote Birmingham Dr. William Hins in 1857. He was among a growing movement of people concerned about the toxic killer in their daily lives, namely their wallpaper. The most famous wallpaper designer to come out of the time, William Morris, quoted, the doctors were bitten as people were bitten by the witch fever, he wrote to his friend Thomas Wardle in 1885. In other words, it was all hysteria. Now, let's just keep in mind that Morris didn't just have his identity as an artist linked to these wallpapers and the wallpaper industry that emerged in Victorian era. He also had a identity that was linked to the arsenic pigments, which were produced, they were newly produced, they were new, new viral durable colours. But it just so happens that these durable colours and arsenic pigments were actually mined from a mine that he owned. So obviously it's all hysteria. It's all crazy. You know, it's just hearsay and it's all everyone else is making it up. This arsenic in the wallpaper isn't making us ill. Convenient how he's making a profit though, because obviously he owns the mine that mines the pigment to make the arsenic arsenic wallpaper. You were literally saying arsenic wallpaper and I was like, I feel like there's something in which wallpaper was poisonous with arsenic maybe. And for some reason, arsenic wallpaper did not link me to the word arsenic in any manner or form. What was it linked to? Uh, absolutely nothing in my head. I was like, arsenic wallpaper, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that reminds me so much of like, I swear Victorian's wallpapers was poisonous somehow. Well, let's get into it. So the Devon Great Consoles, which among the leading producers of arsenic, part of Hawksley's research was to delve into how Morris, a philanthropist who advocated for humane working conditions in his decorative arts company, overlooked the incredible hazards of the arsenic mine and the use of poison in his wallpaper. I'm curious about what humane working conditions back then were. We don't want to know. Apparently working with arsenic. Apparently working with arsenic. 
with arsenic down in the mines. Back in 1771, Swedish chemist Carl Wilhelm Schlie, Schlie? Schlie had developed a green pigment from a compound of copper arsenate. In 1814, William Sattler, a German industrialist, seemingly perfected it by using arsenic and verdigris for a more steadfast green. The pigment could also be mixed to create bright yellows and rich blues, perfect for the Victorian craze for opulent interior design. In 1834, Britain produced 1,222,753 rolls of wallpaper. That seems so many. It is a lot. That's so many more than like 50. Hang on, that number rose by 2,615% to 32 million rolls in 1874. How wild is that? I didn't... I didn't think there were that many people back then that could afford wallpaper. 32 million rolls. 32 million rolls of this wallpaper. That's ridiculous. By 1874. All with arsenic. Arsenic was poisonous. Certainly not a secret. Every Victorian home had a bit of powder lying around for rats and mice. And people likely knew the tales of the inheritance powder being used for murder. I've, I've never heard it called the inheritance powder. Inheritance powder. It doesn't have a taste. Obviously, it, it kills slowly and painfully. And it was available. It was everywhere. It was Dracula. Every Victorian household had it. So if you wanted to bump granddad off or someone and get all their money, a little bit in their food over time, they wouldn't know. Inheritance powder being used for murder. Oh. Yet they also applied arsenic cosmetics, gave their children toys painted with arsenic, wore dresses and hats dyed with arsenic, and ate meat dipped into it to keep away flies. Alison Matthews David, in her 2015 book Fashion Victims, notes that as nature was vanishing from the industrial city, the emerald green became popular on artificial flowers worn in the hair. She points out that just as... Baldurey was til- tilting his book of dark poems, Fleurs de Mal, The Flowers of Evil. The death of a young Parisian artificial florist was being investigated in regards to the poisonous colours. In some kind of disconnect, people believed that only by licking the walls would they get poisoned, or only by the green colours. In this way, it wasn't too different from the radium cosmetics that took off in the mid-20th century, even while the potentially dangerous power of radiation was evident. Left untouched, Victorian wallpaper could still release flakes of arsenic into the air or produce arsenical gas when conditions were damp. Which was probably a lot, because I don't imagine they had dehumidifiers. Victorian homes were obviously incredibly high ceilings, lavish wallpaper, dark you know, opulent spaces. That is what Victorian houses were like. And a lot of Victorian houses, from my understanding, had a lot of damp. It was a year of innovation. Heating hadn't quite been invented yet. I mean, we'll get to that later. They did eventually start making boilers and stuff for the home, which always went wrong. The walls often tended to get damp, which then meant because the damp was on the wall, it would pass through the wallpaper, which would then release arsenic particles into the air. That's why in the UK especially, you know how we have little holiday destinations, a lot of doctors prescribed these vacations away because people would go away, they'd leave their homes, they'd go into these places by the seaside or by nature or this, they'd get the fresh air so they'd be like, I'm cured, because obviously they would be cured because they were away from the home, which was where the wallpaper was being damp and poisoning them. And they didn't understand how when they used to go back home, 
They used to become sick again. They just assumed that it could not be the wallpaper. Impossible. Yeah, but they just didn't make any connections to things. It couldn't be the wallpaper. But that's where things like typical seaside places, like the holiday resorts in the middle of nowhere, that's where they came from. Because they were made so that people could escape the cities, fresh air, to get away from the arsenic wallpaper. And it made them better. It's crazy that. So while other European countries regulated arsenic, Britain was slow, and it was only public demand and new design techniques that changed the industry. Initial reports of wallpaper poisoning were shared in medical literature in the late 1850s, an especially horrifying incident in 1862. Children died in an East London home after they'd torn down the wallpaper and licked the green off its surface. Queen Victoria reportedly had all the green wallpaper torn down in Buckingham Palace after a visiting dignitary became ill in 1879. Yet it wasn't until the Factory Workshop Act of 1883 and 1895 that Parliament instituted any sort of regulations or conditions in factories where workers were regularly encountered arsenic. I'd argue they should probably just stop having arsenic in the workplace as opposed to having work regulations. You see, I also agree with you there, but obviously back then, I think I find this topic particularly interesting for me because obviously, as you know, I like art, I like paint, I like pigments. Pigments is, like, you know, fun. Would you use arsenic, though? (sighs) It's hard for me because I adore arsenic wallpaper. Like, looking at it, like historical obviously I've never seen it in real life because I would be ill it's very much heavily any kind of preservation they have of arsenic wallpaper now is very much you know certain people can access it not open it's not like you can go to a national trust building in the UK and like that's arsenic wallpaper it might look like it but it will be different which is good which is good because you know everyone would be dying just some of the designs and it's the colour like that's where you know when you do think of the arsenic pigment it is the colour of the Victorian era if you think Victorian that green is one that tends to come to mind both down to William Morris's wallpapers and the fashion at the time and it was everywhere everything it was everywhere but I feel like in Today, with today's next technology, you could recreate that colour flawlessly. Yes, no, we can recreate that pigment, but obviously back then we couldn't. It was just a case of how do you make colours? And this was a case of they found a way to make a pigment that was beautiful. Pigment, we can't deny it, but unfortunately it was deadly and it was just ignorance that they didn't realise that arsenic could be inhaled. They obviously assumed that you had to eat it or lick it, like physically ingest it. They didn't understand the idea of particles and, you know, things that we can't see having effect. Well, same with mercury and hats. Yeah, exactly. So what what do you think of the wallpapers that I sent you though? Like they are so obviously this is a audio medium. Audio medium. But I, I, I just want people to go online and have a look. Have a look. Google arsenic wallpaper. Arsenic wallpaper. Like the one that I sent you by John Todd Merrick, I think is very interesting. It's a very bright, vibrant green with all the little people. But the one as well by Jules de Frosse in Paris. That is my personal favourite, I would say. It's my personal favourite, but it's strange because obviously people would see that. It's... Just for the audience, it's very gold, pink. There's little birds. It's beautiful. It's gold. There's birds. But because it wasn't green, people would assume it was safe. Well, yeah. Even though it still had arsenic in it. You would, wouldn't you? Really? That's just how it. That's just how it be. That's my little. That's my little dive into the colours. The colours. The pigment. Arsenic pigment. So I knew. I knew wall. I knew the wallpaper was poisonous. I knew the toys were poisonous and all of that stuff. I did not know that it was just one dude. 
So in the UK, it was mainly William Morris that made it popular in wallpapers. You've seen the Morris wallpapers where it's like leaves, but he basically made the wallpaper trade in the UK a thing from my understanding. And it is just incredibly convenient that his designs used the pigment that killed people, but that pigment arsenic they needed to make the pigment just happened to come from his mind. Just a crazy little coinky dink. Like that's crazy how that happens. But it's not poisonous at all, but obviously, so he's not just making money off his wallpapers, he's making money off the arsenic mine, which is then funding, you know, mines his arsenic to get his wallpapers, makes money more wallpapers, mines yeah. All connects a bit much. Oh, a little suspicious. A little sussy bucker over there. A little sus. Little sus. But amazing wallpapers like if you are into Victorian art his wallpapers are iconic so I just generally didn't know that so many wallpapers were sold by one guy essentially so wallpaper was a big thing there was a lot of wallpaper and it was in a lot of homes and it killed a lot of people (laughs) made a lot of people very sick I'm not denying that wallpaper existed and it killed people I didn't know it was one dude yeah no I didn't know it was that that big a number 32 million next time because this episode ran too long What's next? The next topic is they put what in their bodies? I know Victorians had a high birth rate, but I'm amazed they survived us all. This was one meal. No wonder they all had gout. Twelve courses. Twelve courses. That's a lot of food. 